Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. My name is Alex. As Matt said, we went to uh, Sam Houston State University as college students. Eat them up cats in Conference USA now. We then went to uh, Kazakhstan where we gave a year and prayed about a lifetime, as I'm sure our world missionaries at the M Lounge will tell you about. From there, we pioneered New Mexico State University. And from there, we went to the National Kyle Ministry Center to serve as National Training Director, cultivating a common culture across uncommon campuses, which is easier said than done. But this weekend, it's a, ra- a more simple job, I hope, of preaching. And the job of a preacher is simply to tell you what you don't want to hear in a way that you want to hear it. And I'm going to try to do that very sincerely. Uh, The gospel is both gladness and gravity. The gladness is every gospel explaining how Jesus picked up a cross and died so we can live, which is really, really good news. The gravity is Matthew 16, 24, or Mark 8, 34, or Luke 9, 23, explaining how if we want to follow Jesus... He says we must pick up our cross daily, die to self, and follow him so he can live within us. The sermons of this salt are going to move from gladness to gravity. Tonight we're going to talk about community, something that we all want but don't quite know how to have. Tomorrow night we're going to talk on the dangers of having somebody else's Jesus be a substitute for your own. And then Sunday morning we're going to be a little reflective as we investigate the Lord's movement in our lives, looking for memories and asking the question, Why do I do what I do, and who do I do it for? So would you pray with me as we get into tonight's message? Jesus, we love you. Thank you for bringing all these students and all these staff here. Through winter storms, through snow, through prices, they have been here. They have paid a price. Thank you so much, Jesus. And thank you for what you're doing in our campuses. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. Lord God, no matter how saved or unsaved that we are, We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and we ask for your presence, King Jesus, that makes mountains burn with fire, your presence that makes prophets repent, your presence that makes angels sing. May your presence be here tonight, God, and may we believe you. In Jesus' name, amen. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And who is our neighbor? Jesus preaches make disciples, but then he adds this unique, unmistakable clause of all nations. We hear the unction of Jesus again in Acts where he preaches, be my witnesses. The command does not end with a period before he adds another clause to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. The answer is clear. We were not made for small cliques. We were made for vast, world-changing community. Friendship exists when two different people become unified, but a community exists when multiple different people become unified by a love for one another. And it's this community that our soul needs. Dr. Tim Keller has preached on the necessity of spiritual friendship, saying it's both discovered, not made, but it's also made and not discovered. Winky Prattney, in explaining the components of spiritual friendship, says this requires a common purpose and a common understanding and a constant unselfishness and a constant forgiveness.
forgiveness. This thesis seemingly gives us the fruit coming from those branches. This sermon is a small attempt to illuminate the four requisites for community so we can both discover and make community where it's not. So with that being said, look with me at how community is first discovered, not just made. In college, I worked at a summer camp with numerous other college students responsible for the care of kindergartner to high schoolers through any given week of time, and every week, camp counselors would be paired into a co-leading system. And much to my dismay, I was paired with a guy named Dio for that first week of campus, or first week of camps. I did not like this pairing one bit, because for one, Dio was six foot five, and as you can tell, I'm five foot nothing because my mom married a Hispanic Smurf. The only one of its kind, so I felt very insecure. For two, he went to a Bible school that taught things I did not agree with. And although I never went to Bible school, at this time, I believe reading half a C.S. Lewis book made me a theologian. <laughs> Lastly, he introduced himself by calling himself Sunflower because he is both tall and radiant. So naturally, I wanted nothing to do with this tree branch of a person named Dio, but for better or worse, we were assigned as co-counselors that week to ensure the well-being of 12 first-grade boys. And when the campers' bus arrived on that hot Texas afternoon, so began the longest day of our lives. These children fought the entire time. They yelled the entire time. They were cruel to each other the entire time. One drank too much Pepsi at dinner and wet his entire bed. And because he slept on the top bunk, he wet his bunkmate's bed too. And it was a part of our $1.75 per hour responsibility to clean it up. One of them broke someone's arm while playing a game. One of them already had a broken arm and used their cast as a weapon. When you asked them to do something, they would respond to you, I'll pray about it. This is frustrating as the only worse thing than disobedience is when it becomes religious. To make matters worse, all of this was the first day. And when these opening 24 hours were coming to a close, Dio and I had a conversation where a common understanding emerged. If this week is anything like today, we will not make it unless we cooperate together. So for the rest of that week, we worked to stop fights, to make peace, to prevent more broken arms. We did everything with the understanding. We had to return these first graders back to their parents better than when they came. And within days, we began to think alike, knowing what each other was thinking before one said it. And through familiarity, we began to act alike, using each other's vocabulary and even believing each other's beliefs. By the end of that week, we were friends who then became roommates, who then stood next to each other at each other's wedding, who are still friends with each other over 17 years later. And this process, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> this process happens throughout our world with similar scenarios and different characters. For people to be friends, we have to agree upon a common understanding. As the Bible says in Amos 3.3, can two really walk together unless they are agreed? As C.S. Lewis says in The Four Loves, friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one who believed this way. It is this requisite for common understanding we see in the beginning of the church. Before we read about a community that had all things in common, 
that witnessed with great power, that experienced great grace, that lacked nothing, that sold everything, that distributed to any who had need. We read Acts 4.32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Before it says anything about one heart and one soul, it says this community had one mind, the multitude of those who believed, which begs the question, believed what? In 2 Timothy 2.2, we read, these things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. This was written from the Apostle Paul, who was discipled by the apostles, who were discipled by Jesus to attempt to capture at the very least an inexhaustive list of these things the multitude believed, we could refer to the writings and preaching of Jesus and the apostles. These things must be, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, Hebrews 4. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians. He has sent Jesus to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Luke 4. In Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1. Be holy because I am holy, says Peter. Pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness without which nobody will see the Lord, says Hebrews. Go out and make disciples of all nations. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Love one another. When the multitude believed these things, then they became one heart and one soul, evidenced by heaven itself coming down to earth. Did they believe these things and then belong to community? Did they belong to the community and then believe these things? The principle that must not be missed is a common understanding, is the requisite to the community the Lord has designed for us. In order for us to have one heart, And one soul, we have to have one mind. So to reiterate the words of the prophet, if we're going to walk together, we must be agreed. The common understanding agreement begins with being committed to this mind of Christ. But it cannot end there, as people have agreed and still dishonored one another. We need something more. After my wife and I gave a year to planning a ministry in Kazakhstan, We returned back to Sam Houston State University where I participated in the campus ministry internship program. Have you ever left home for a year? I returned to a familiar place, but I returned to very different, unfamiliar people. The fellow college students I grew up with had graduated and gone. I did not know these new people. They did not know me, but I was asked to lead a resource group, which is, I know everyone has different words here, a small group for small group leaders nonetheless. So leading a resource group of people I did not know and did not lead to Jesus, was a very unique task to say the least. I spent the summer trying to connect with five young men who were assigned to me. I did not choose them. They didn't choose me to be more accurate. And this was clear as I would meet with them, and they would talk about how their small group leader was the most perfect person to walk this earth who is not named Jesus or Heather Springer. And the most difficult of all the resource guys to connect with was a young man named Emmett. I spent the entire summer trying to connect with him, but phone calls were missed, text messages were not returned. Whenever I would come across him by chance, he would explain that his cell phone service was faulty, but he was not a T-Mobile customer, so I knew he was lying. The school year began. We had weekly one-on-one meetings, group meetings, but in no setting were we able to click 
Maybe it was he loved soccer and I love football, different tastes of life. Perhaps it was because he was engaged and I was married, different stages of life. Or perhaps it was because I was not his original small group leader, different influences of life. Either way, a common understanding of who Jesus is was present, but a connection for community was absent. Until one day, while driving home from one-on-one in a local coffee shop, we noticed a dog running loose through the neighborhood. This is not uncommon to any neighborhood, and usually when a person sees a loose dog, they keep going on their way. But I noticed this big, black, happy-go-lucky lab looked exactly like my neighbor's dog. And having a dog myself, if my buddy was running out and about, I want my neighbor to do something. So I said, Emmett, that's Hannah's dog. We have to get him back to her. So we parked the car on the street. We slowly approached with smiles on our faces, forgetting that dogs smell insincerity. The dog decided that the only thing happier than these strangers was to run away from them. So we then spent an entire hour running after him. He would go left when we went right. He went right when we went left. We would try to trap him in a corner and he would go through our legs. At one point, he literally ran circles around us. We dove, we sprinted, we burnt 10,000 calories. And then by a sheer act of mercy, like a baby deciding they are done crying for the night at 4.30 in the morning, he decides to lay down. We grab him by the collar, we escort him to the truck, We deliver him to Hannah's doorstep. We rang Hannah's doorbell, proud of our accomplishment and ready to see the look of gratefulness on her face as our small yet earned reward. Hannah answers the door. We said, we have found your dog running through the neighborhood. We have brought your lost dog home. She says, that is not my dog. (laughs) She then opens the door so we can fully see that her black lab is sitting content in the living room watching Flipper Flop on HGTV. Emmett and I realized we devoted ourselves to the common purpose of bringing a runaway dog home, and we accidentally became dog nappers in the process. But after that day, nothing in our relationship was the same. We were closer. We were more transparent. We laughed with each other because really we were laughing at each other for the day that we accidentally brought the wrong dog home. And this common purpose of trying to save a runaway dog, as ridiculous as it was, as small as it was, and as much as a failure as it was, this made us friends. And this is the point. A common purpose produces community. If the purpose can be small and still make friends, then what can a grand purpose do? It's no mistake that high school athletes that fought for state championships are close but nowhere near as close as soldiers who fought for a nation's freedom. This is why we read about David and Jonathan having their souls knit together. The greater purpose of fighting for Israel's freedom and God's glory made them brothers. Common purpose produces community, and the greater the purpose, the greater the community. This must mean for anyone who has devoted themselves to fulfilling the purposes of God, the greatest purpose in eternity. A community becomes knit together that is stronger than any birthright, power, or privilege. Truly, community is discovered not made through common understanding and common purpose, but even the most like of minds and paths can become filled with enmity. A common understanding has not prevented political parties from breaking or churches from splitting. Parents united with the common purpose of raising children can still split 
Teams fighting for championships, profits, or souls have still found ways to disband. Common understanding and common purpose do help us discover community. But when sinfulness is discovered within the members of that community, when we fail each other, Christ-like actions must be made lest the community becomes undone. So look with me now at how community is made, not just discovered. At the earliest age, this worldview of my enters into our vocabulary. When my wife and I were foster parents, our first foster daughter was a beautiful, lively little girl named Kelly. She was only four years old, but quickly everything in our house became hers. It was no my bedroom where she would close the door to impede us from putting her down for a nap. It was no my toys when we would, she would stall cleanup time leading to dinner time. It was no my Abby when I tried to hug my own wife within my own home. This same practice exists within our three-year-old niece. When she would FaceTime from Texas to see my three-month-old daughter, her cousin born in Missouri, she would greet me, not by saying hello, but by demanding, can I see my baby? She does not lose sleep over her waking. She does not lose money over her diapers. She does not lose her stomach over changing those diapers. But in her worldview, this is her baby instead of mine. And this, quite bluntly, is selfishness. It's understandable in toddlers. Since these little children came into the world, someone has dropped everything to arrive at their cry-filled summoning like servants waiting on their Lord. Someone has clothed them, fed them, bathed them. Their toys have slowly expanded from the crib to their room to the living room to now conquering the entire house in a little less than a year. In the blink of an eye, these little people have transformed an entire house into their personal daycare, all because someone else has treated them like they are royalty of of course, toddlers are selfish. We were raised believing we are the center of the universe. The natural result is the practice of no mind becoming as natural as breathing. This selfishness of no mind continues into adulthood. iTunes and iMac make no subtleties. Streaming wars exist to play what you want when you want it. Dating apps have made way to sexual apps so you can get what you want when you want it. Decisions can change overnight if enough people make noise. Customer service is designed to treat you like you're the manager of the store. Even sermons have regressed into being what the Lord can do for you as opposed to the actual biblical message, what I must do for the Lord because of what he has done for us. This practice of no mind is not new. No mind is how the devil was born when he believed the sovereignty of God should be shared with him. No mind is how sin was born when the first man looked at his God-given wife with his God-given knowledge in his God-given garden and believed he could have it all without God. No mind is how starvation continues, how poverty grows, how the next generation is limited to following instead of leading, how the best are kept to maintain ministries instead of sent to pioneer new ones. No mind is how platforms are closed, how power is hoarded, how salaries remain unequal, how people are used, how community is killed. The simplest action that we can do to rewrite this historical narrative of no mind is to minister in the opposite practice by saying and behaving with a conviction, yes, ours. Yes, ours was the spirit of the New Testament church Going back to our text, Acts 4, 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. It continues, neither did anyone say that the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. 
And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, and distributed to each as anyone had need. This was the culture. You need money, let me sell my land. What's mine is ours. You need food, let me bring my pantry to you. What is mine is ours. You need clothes, take the ones off my back. What is mine is ours. The text says this unselfish practice brought great grace upon them all. Yes, ours is the practice of grace. It is offering someone what they do not have. It's love, finding a need, and meeting it. It's unselfishly choosing for the highest good of God and his kingdom. This yes, ours practice is the component of constant unselfishness without which no community can be a real community. This practice is few and far between, but it is alive and well today. I've seen it with my own eyes. I grew up in a Kyalfa where students sold their possessions and shared their money to put fellow students through college. Yes, constant unselfishness can mean that your financial education is our responsibility. I've seen tax returns of thousands of dollars be used for missions instead of materialism. Yes, constant unselfishness can mean that your gospel witness to the ends of the earth requires our wallet. I have seen young people and diverse people entrusted with platform and power by older people who could have held on to it. Yes, constant unselfishness can mean that your ability to say yes to opportunity requires someone else's delight to say no to opportunity so you can have it. This practice of yes, ours is constant unselfishness. This is how the hungry are fed, how wealth is distributed to the needy, how the thirsty receive something to drink, how the naked become clothed, how missionaries are sent to the ends of the earth, how the next generation is leading instead of watching, how the best are sent to plant the flag of Christ where it's not, how platform is opened, how power is given away, and how community becomes alive. There is no real community without common purpose and common understanding and constant unselfishness. But what happens when unselfishness fails? What must we do when we inevitably offend each other on this side of eternity, which is going to happen in the next 365 days? Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, Trusting God in a Twisted World, captured a real offense, followed by her real response. She writes, Recently I was in turmoil, about some things somebody said to me. I lay awake at night, mentally enacting whole scenes and conversations in which we would have it out, dragging everything into consciousness, saying everything that was in our minds, pitting what she said against what I said, what she did against what I did, defending and offending, complaining and explaining. I had heard this is what we were supposed to do, to get it out, to get it up front, to express it, but what a devastating business. The very process itself gives me the chance to add to my own list of sins against her. When people talk too much, says Proverbs 10, sin is never far away. Common sense holds its tongue. She continues, psychology describes, the Bible prescribes. 
Turn from evil. Let that be the medicine to keep you in health, says Proverbs 3. 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind. Love is never quick to take offense. Love keeps no score of wrongs. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, and its endurance. The woman who had hurt me had plenty of heavy burdens to bear. I had to ask, how could I help her bear them? For one thing, by being offended without taking offense. That is, by following my master. In the book of Romans, this master has commanded us to love our enemies, to bless those who curse you, to do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Jesus is commanding for us to do for others what he has done for us. We were enemies of God, but while we were still evil, Christ died for us. We curse God with our behavior and our beliefs, but he who knew no sin became sin so we can become right with God. We hated Jesus, evidenced by trying to be our own gods, but for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that we may believe in him and not perish. We used and persecuted Jesus, but Jesus prayed willingly on the cross that he willingly grabbed, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. It is this forgiveness of God that has turned enemies into friends. And when we inevitably fail each other, it is this constant forgiveness that's going to restore our community once more. So I'm going to invite the band back up as I lead this to conclusion. Community is discovered, not made, through common purpose and common understanding. Community is made, not discovered, through constant unselfishness, and constant forgiveness. And when we have all four of these components, then and only then are we going to have real community. So I want to challenge you, Chi Alpha, to consider these four things. Number one, do you believe who Jesus is? If so, please respond by praying to God to help you understand who he is and what he's done for you. And if you don't believe in Jesus, then please pray to God to help him understand who he is and what he's done for you. Number two, do you need a purpose tonight? Now is not the time to be watching discipleship or criticizing discipleship or applauding discipleship, but to be in discipleship. The common theme around this time of year is, well, I'm, God hasn't called me to be a small group leader which I believe is a direct contradiction of the verses that we have already read. Matthew 28, go out and make disciples of all nations. Acts 1, be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Everyone is called to make disciples. Small group leading is simply a chair to fulfill. If that is you, would you respond by making disciples or telling your small group leader that you want to help make disciples? There will be no greatest student awakening in the history of the world if Chi Alpha is sitting on the bench. Number three, do you need to find a need and meet it? This is what love does. We must respond with constant unselfishness by doing something for somebody else out of sheer unselfishness. And last but certainly not least, do we need to forgive someone who has offended us? Does someone need to forgive you because you've offended them? Please, do not worship God for a single moment more at this conference and beyond it until you get right with others. 
If we're understanding the teaching of Jesus correctly, we are not going to have this presence of God that makes mountains become on fire, that makes prophets repent, that makes angels sing until we have peace with each other. Let us be quick to listen and let's be quicker to forgive. And may the Lord please, please bless our time together with his very self and give us a common understanding, a common purpose, a constant unselfishness. And so help us, God, a constant forgiveness. Would you pray with me and then feel welcome to respond in your seats to the Lord? Or grab someone and walk out to the lobby and respond with them to the Lord. Jesus, we love you. And we ask your help, God, to repent and believe. To believe that you are everything that you have said you are. A mercy that endures forever. A love that has no bounds. A mercy that washes our sins as white as sparkling snow that throws our iniquities into the sea, that treads our sins underneath your feet. This is good news, Jesus. And would you give us this common purpose, Lord God, to go out and make disciples of all nations, to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, to preach this gospel as a witness to the ends of the earth so that the end will come and Jesus will come back and wipe every tear from every eye until death to die. Let it be, Jesus. And would you give us this constant unselfishness that sells our possessions and gives to any who have need to be more generous, that this Christmas season would exist within us as a disposition, always. And God Almighty, give us that constant forgiveness. You forgave a debt that we could not possibly pay back to you. So would you help us to pay back each other's measurable debts to us? In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.